Welcome to another episode of Taiwan Context. I'm Michael Turton, and I'm here today with Michael Klein, singer, songwriter, sound engineer, Iron Master, <laughs> a singer of songs and a teller of tales. Welcome aboard, Michael. <laughs> thank you so much. Always a pleasure to hang out with you, Michael. Thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you, sir. I remember we first met way back when. When was that? 2006 or 2007? Yeah. yeah, in Taipei. In Taipei. One of Jerome Keating's things you remember. Yes. Yeah. Jerome Keating, Dr. Keating used to collect us, what, every Saturday? Once a month or something? Once a month, yeah. Once a month. And a bunch of us would meet up there and talk about Taiwan and politics and stuff. And people would often give short talks. Jeff Martin, who researched the police, gave a talk there once that was very mm. memorable. And then you and I started doing geocaching together. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, those were the days. And we would go up here to Huko, where Michael lives, and go out to the Filipino restaurants. And Michael's a professional singer, and he would sing, and every heart in the room would break. Both sexes. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, We're going to have to delete this before we're even five minutes into it. <laughs> so, yeah, those were the days. And then, let's see, at that time, what were you doing? You were doing something... You were making like little sliding parts in your metal business. Yeah, we're doing some business. mortuary products. I had left off from working for a company, and my wife and I had started our, our own company doing castings and machine parts by that time. Oh, right. What was that part you were making then? It was for like doors? For it, was, it was a slide for a crypt shutter. <laughs> a crypt shutter. <laughs> yeah. Like they have, for example, when they have internment in a wall, like at Arlington. Yeah. And then also we make these little things called flower rosettes that basically hide the screws. Mm -hmm. So my father is actually interred in Arlington, and I got a picture of his grave, and I told my wife, I said, it, it looks like we may have, <laughs> have made the, the flower <laughs> rosettes that were, on, that were on the screws. I don't know. That's but really it's the wonderful. Same, yeah, same, same kind of thing, same, same kind of uh, product. So When did you start your business? We started it right at the end of 2006. Mm -hmm. My first venture to Taiwan was in, in the year 2000. And then in 2002, I made an exploratory trip. I changed jobs. I was working for another gentleman that I'd worked for in another company. And they were interested in developing some outsourcing. As we, we used to call it outsourcing. We just would you know, outright call it. Now you got to be sneaky about it because everybody's against it. But uh, they wanted a, a program of outsourcing. And I, and I had some contacts here. And so in 2000, I did an exploratory trip and I met some individuals that were heavily networked and it turned out to be an amazing kind of coincidence because it's hard to infiltrate the community here, you know, manufacturing. Right. And then what had happened was they tried to do things, you know, the American way. It didn't work out, but um, with the help of one of my good friends, Tony Lynn, I'd already met my wife at the time who was a Deloitte and Touche accountant. And it's funny because some of her clients were manufacturers, so she knew the business knew the tax laws in and out. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, if we, if we start a business together and you know, you bring your skills to the table, I bring my skills to the table, then we can take all their customers and put them out of business and make a lot of money. And that's <laughs> what we did. So. <laughs> but it's okay. I think are okay. And, and I'm still on good terms, you know, with that previous employer. It's cool. What products were you making at that time? We're doing uh, military products, but not directly associated with with weapons. Things like radio boxes, you know. Th oh yeah, I remember that. You showed me that when yes. I visited your factory, your sandcasting factory. Yes, and so in 2003, we had so many things going on here that I was spending half my time in the states and half my time in Taiwan. Right. And you know, there's an old Chinese proverb: you can't have one foot in two boats. 
Oh. Right? <laughs> I don't think I've heard that one. Well, no, okay. <laughs> I would leave to go to Taiwan. I'd come back and a bunch of stuff in the factory was messed up. And, and then I would, this is really bad. I would go to America and I would come back to Taiwan. They hadn't done, hadn't done a damn thing. In Taiwan? Yeah, on anything. Why not? Well, I don't know. Um, but but I, I figured out what I had to do was stop telling them my schedule. Oh. So what I did, so I, I had a tool that was being made, a die casting tool, and it was very expensive for Taiwan standards. It was 50,000 US dollars, okay? And this is 2003. That's a lot of money. It is. And I know why it's a lot of money, and I've been able to solve that problem and completely circumvent all of that. So I am dealing directly with these companies now because what we didn't know was you can't find companies directly on the internet because all the good companies have Chinese websites and, right. and no presence in English. Right. The English presence that you're getting is some high-priced Taipei trading company. And we got fooled into that. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And they didn't know jack squat about manufacturing. You know, I'm talking to the managers and I'm asking them normal, you know, you know what's the EOQ on that? Huh? What's EOQ? That's, oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm like... Oh, okay. Now, I, now, okay. I knew the feces level was high, but now I know exactly how high it is, right? So in 2003, I came back in October and I called them like on my way to the airport. Hey, I'll be there tomorrow. Okay. Cause it's nighttime in Taiwan. So when I arrived, we went straight to this factory and there's a big hunk of billet in the CNC machine center. And it only had like maybe three hours of cutting on it, you know. And, and they were hoping I was too stupid right. to know. You know. Oh, yeah, we're making good progress on it. I see a cavity. They've got the, you know, the ball in mill. It's, it, you mean they hadn't even made the mold yet? No. Wow. No, nothing. I was expecting that all the mold parts were done and that they're working on the assembly to put the tool together. But no, sure. they hadn't, hadn't even machined the, ca the cavities yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and this, these, you know, they weren't using EDM. They didn't make an electrode. They're just doing this regular CNC machining. Okay, I mean they're doing it by feel, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> <laughs> the old-fashioned way. And don't get me wrong. I mean the machining technology here is off the charts, incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. But it was just that they procrastinated, and so I quit telling them my schedule. Right. Well, you and, know, my future dream is to write a book about. What do they call it? The one minute manager? I'm going to write a yes. book about Taiwan management and call it the last minute manager. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, about this time, I was beginning to formulate my understanding of, quote, the Taiwan way, uh -huh. end quote. And let me tell you, that has been a guiding principle. That is like, that is like the Falun Gong of my life, you know, <laughs> to, to, to the Taiwan way. And so... If I was with an American guy, they'd be going, what the heck's going on? They haven't done anything. What's wrong with these people? And I'd have to go, stop. Because you know, the minute you raise your voice. You lost. The minute, that's right. The minute you act upset or, you know, you can be, you can be speculative. You can, you can like, hmm, let me think about this. You know, like that. It's okay. <laughs> that's okay. You know, and you can ask questions and stuff, but you still have to be polite. And you have to say things like, I know I'm a really strange person and I have these bizarre ideas because I'm from America, but it looks to me like you've only been working on this for three hours. <laughs> okay. And I could have done that in a way that would have been acceptable to them, but it wouldn't have gained me anything. Right. So I just went back there and I did, you know, like the number one most important phrase, oh, Kaihao. Yes. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, right. And so we, I got over that hurdle. So now I know where they are. They're way behind. 
And so now I can see where this is going. Again, it's an, it's just another like feces level check, you know? Sure. Okay. So now I got it. And um, I decided that what I had to do is I had to just stay here. In Taiwan. And, yeah. That way I could show up anytime. Sure. So they can't do this anymore. Right. In 2004, in February, I moved here. And I didn't have actual visa support. And this is back before, you know, the 90-day yeah, yeah. exemption, right? So I right. had to go to the de facto embassy and get like a 60-day visitor's visa, which means I got to leave the country like six times a year. Yeah. So you wonder how many. I used to do that too. Exactly. So, so what, <laughs> Fly what? out to Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, so how many times have you been to Thailand? About 50. I know. You know the kind of stuff, right? You know? People ask me, have you been to Hong Kong? I'm like, hmm, I think I'm on the third digit of my trip to Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that I, that I learned too, you know, because the tool wasn't worked on, it was just started and I was in, in developing my Taiwan way methodology. I realized that, and those of you who are in manufacturing or in business know in America, we always talk about, we're going to do some sanity checks. We're going to you know, check and see the facts and so forth. And right. these USA sanity checks don't work here. And the reason is, is because nothing is centralized. It's all decentralized. Like in the United States, in the factory that I worked in, we did our own core shells. Like, you know, we, we have a casting, any void in the casting has to have something to take the space up so the metal doesn't flow into it. That's called a core. We made our own cores in that factory. We took the castings and cut off the gates, grinding, polished them. We did everything up into the heat treating and the machining, but everything else we did in-house. Here in Taiwan, you'll have a factory that all they do is pour. They don't cut off. They don't polish. They don't grind. They don't cut off? Yeah, they cut off the gates. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, they'll just put them in a bulketeer and just ship it. Somebody else cuts it off. Or like in the case of investment castings, they don't remove the shells. They don't make the shell cores. They don't make the cores there. And so what happens is in my factory, I could tell the kid, get a clipboard and give me a status. And within 30 minutes, he goes around, he goes to the station. Okay, I got 50 of these, I got 100 I can look at it. Okay, I know where we are today. I know here's the, this is the bottleneck. You can't do that because you call up the factory. Ah, ah, ding xia, ding xia, huh? Right. And you don't hear back from him until 4.30 in the afternoon. And what he counted was somebody gave him the count at noon. And right. it's completely different. Right. And it doesn't match up with the count that you got here. And then the other factory. So you got three or four different sources of information telling you the status of those factories. And then you've got a trading company that doesn't understand manufacturing trying to <laughs> correlate that information and telling you the status <laughs> of the product. So now you know if you're dealing with a company in Taiwan or China, you get the most bizarre emails that have nothing to do with the question that you asked them because they don't know. Right. And they can't tell you. So here's the problem. It made me look like an idiot. Of My course. boss would call me and say, so how are things going? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think they're okay. Are you going to make the schedule? I won't be able to tell you that until the schedule arrives. And then I'll be able to tell you whether we're going to hit it or not, probably that afternoon, but not before. <laughs> What's going on? And, and they would... To order me to do bizarre stuff. I, I want you to go to his office at, at six o'clock in the morning. I want you to sit there in front of his door until he comes in. Well, he comes in at 1030, you know, and it doesn't, you know, so I was doing all these bizarre things and I got to go in and yell at him and tell him to do this stuff. And I, I wouldn't, it was like, you know, I knew it was the wrong thing to do, but they weren't willing to accept doing things the Taiwan way. Your American bosses. Correct. Yeah. 
So I'm going to tell you right now that when I took over some of those products and I did them the Taiwan way, they were successful. When under the stewardship of the American boss, they weren't because the strategies that they were using don't apply here. And that's very important because why would you do that? Why would you have somebody on the ground somewhere and tell them what to do? I mean, that, uh, it, when the military commander gets the report from the recon guy, he doesn't argue with him. Right. He just says, okay, well, I didn't realize they had 500 divisions. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> you know, but what they were doing was instead of adjusting their battle plan for the, for the intel, they would try to strong arm the factory into doing what they wanted them to do in, in a certain way. And just to tell you how different this is, and there's another important thing that I want to point out too, because you come over to Taiwan and you have to deal with translators. Right. They're most often female, and they're very agreeable, and they're very nice. But a big mistake that people make is that they think that English proficiency equals a certain way of thinking, like American thinking. Right. It's a pattern of thinking, right. and it doesn't. No. You might think that somebody who speaks fluent English might be like a Republican or a, a Democrat or might have Judeo-Christian values or all these things like that that you associate with a country where people speak English. Uh-uh. Doesn't happen like that. <laughs> and so one of the th things that I have to tell people is, okay, it's a 16-hour flight, but it's like a four thousand year journey to get where they were culturally and it is the other side of the world and you have to do things like it's the other side of the world and i'm going to give you a really really good example the, the guy that i work for is a brilliant engineer he's a big shot he's spoken directly to two u.s presidents for example okay i, I better not say anymore you'll figure out who he is but he came here, and he actually is such a good engineer that at one factory, they had a kind of a, a problem programming the CNC center. So he sat down at the terminal, and he did it himself because he knew the programming language. On one trip, he came, and he was looking at the casting that, that we were doing, and he walked up to the CNC machine center. He's looking through the window as we're running one of these castings. It's pretty big. you know, It's about uh, 18 centimeters long or so. It's a box. And he's like, oh, my God. I'm like, what? He said, no, they can't do it this way. It's all wrong if they're holding it from that. In and, 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 I, and I said, Wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. We did the preliminary inspection on this. I have the QC report right here. This thing is within tolerance. This thing is actually very good. No, but I'm seeing how they do it. They can't do it. I said, hold on, just, you know. Well, he's pacing up and down in front of the machine center. And finally, the buzzer goes off. The light goes on. The guy comes up, the operator comes up and slides a door on. This guy practically bumps his head, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to get in there looking, right? So, the, you know, the machinist is trying to, you know, excuse me, excuse me, why is he, he's trying to get his wrench in there and he's unlocking the, the clamps and he pulls the part out. He pulls the part out of the machine center. Right. And he's looking in there. It doesn't say anything. Oh, he says. <laughs> oh, they're doing it like that. Yeah, he says. Well, if they're doing it like that, then it's okay. But I've never seen it done like that before, and I never imagined that you could do it like this. And I said, it's the other side of the world. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I, I just want to hold up a sign like the Wiley Coyote. It's right. the other side of the world. You know, and this, this, is ha this, I, this happens all the time. And I have to tell people 
also to keep your mouth shut because, okay, you and I are Americans and Americans are great storytellers. Uh, and we, we, we are definitely talkers. Yeah. And, and like, I'm telling stories right now, right? Yeah. But that can bite you so bad. And I'm going to give you a real life example of this. In another instance, we had a die cast box, okay? And it was really complicated. The box is complicated, but it also had a cover. The cover wasn't, it was just a cover, you know? So we had it made in two different factories. We had, because it would have been really expensive to do it in the same factory because the box was so complicated, we had to do it in an investment casting factory. Wow. Okay. Very detailed internal structures. And so the cover was easy. So we just did it in sand casting and we just machined it flat, right? That was easy. But the whole time, the whole idea was we kept telling both factories, these parts have to grow up together. If I have a box, no cover, can't use it. If I have covers and no box, I can't use that. So we drilled ahead. Yeah, okay, so they got it. Okay, right. Okay, great. So cover, box, get right. So we're saying this to the cover factory, and we're saying this to the box factory. So boss goes in, and he wants to check. So he comes over to Taiwan, and we check to the, the box factory. Ah, daggone it, man. They're three weeks behind. Oh, this is a, this is a disaster. I got I to gotta change my schedule and stuff. So at the time... I didn't really think about it. It's one of those things like, I know now, but we went to see the cover factory. How are things? Oh, things are great. That's great because the covers are going to be three weeks late. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, oh, my God. It's a, you shouldn't have done that. It's a, why? He goes, you told him repeatedly that the covers are no good without the box. Yeah. And that the box and the covers have to come up. Yeah. Well, why did you tell him that, that the box is late? Well, I just wanted to know what's going on. No, <laughs> he doesn't know why you told him that. He's not an American storyteller. You just gave him three weeks. Yep. He's going he's gonna to go back and say, oh, he, oh, the box has to be, the cover has to be ready with the box. Hold up, hold up on the covers. We don't need them for three more weeks. That's yep. exactly what's going to happen. Yep. So you got to keep your mouth quiet. Got to keep your mouth shut. I'm going to give you another example of that. Okay. And the problem is that I don't want you to get the wrong idea because it's all about your intent. And we want to be transparent and we want to tell the truth. That's what we do. Right. And sometimes if we feel that we're not transparent, that it's lying by omission, right? Sure, sure. And I guess it's technically true, but if you instill fear in people because you told them the truth... <laughs> They won't do anything. Right. And there is a certain level of technical proficiency that people have where they can identify the problems for themselves. Sure. Okay. That tool that they weren't making, <laughs> I finally got it, and it was a piece of junk. It was made by some guy. He was only 25 years old. He inherited the business from his dad. His dad's in the nursing home. He just started the business. The tool broke. I took it to a die caster that I know who's also a tooling maker. Really, really good combination, you know, because sure. he's making the tools that he's doing the shots with too. And I said, can you fix this tool? Yeah. So it was, had a big crack in it. And I got pictures I'll show you sometime, but he welded it and it's perfect. So I said, I want you to run 1,500 pieces of this part. I said, okay, I made a mistake. I told him that our data from the previous runs showed that there was a 25% NG rate. Okay. No good rate? That's right. 
So percent. One out of four shots would be bad. And that's bad for a couple of reasons. Number one, that reduces the life of the tool right. by 25%. Because sure. if it's only good for 50,000 shots, well, there you go. The second thing is that whenever you shoot a part like that in die casting, you produce an aluminum part, but it's not virgin material anymore. So the value of the material goes down. It can only be used as remelt. And remelt always has to have virgin material added to it. So any way you look at it, a tool that makes bad parts is compounded over time to be really bad, really negative. And so he goes, oh, well, I can't run this. I, I can't make any money. I said, I'll make sure that you make money. Here's what I'm going to do. And I asked them, everything here is done on, on kilograms. I said, what is your NT dollar value per kilogram when you shoot aluminum? This is a long time ago. He said, it's 100 NT per kilogram. I said, okay, I'm going to double it. There's enough profit in this part. I'm going to pay you 200 NT per kilogram. you got 25% failure. You're actually going to make more money if you do this job than you normally would. If you had the normal amount, you know, maybe the, the 0.1 or 0.2% NG, you're going to make a lot more money than that. He said, wow, okay, okay, cool. All right, I got a call from him the next day. Oh, I'm really worried about this. I'm going to lose money. No, no, no. Don't you remember? I said I was going to double your rate. You're getting 200 NT per kilogram, right? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this went on for four more days, and he finally called me and said, I can't do it. I'm afraid I'm going to lose money. How? I don't know. I just, I'm afraid and fear. See, this is a big thing. Dr. Deming in the Western world, you know, is one of the gurus of manufacturing from way, way back when. Dr. Deming said that one of the things you have to remove in a manufacturing environment is fear. But he meant that for the workers, so that the workers would have the power to do things that they know are the right thing to do to make money for the company. But Taiwanese have this fear of the unknown. Right, right. And you've seen this before oh. in, in all aspects of society yep. here. Right. So they don't know why, but they're afraid that something's going to happen and they can't identify what it is. So an American will, will look at this opportunity and go, wow, we can make a lot of money on that. And the Taiwanese will say, wow, we can lose a lot of money on that. That's just how it is. They, just, they think about what they can lose, what they can go wrong rather than the benefit. So I finally told him, okay, well, button the tool up. I'm going to have somebody else make it. So I called another guy that I knew. And I said, there's a tool over here. Would you pick it up, take it to your factory and make me 1,500 pieces? He goes, yeah, sure. Two weeks later, they were shot. He comes up to me. He goes, we had a little problem with the tool. And it had about 25% bad. He says, so I'll tell, tell you what, the next time, the next time that uh, you want me to run this job, I'm, I'm going to have to add a little more money on to it. I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> The Taiwan way. So he still made money anyway. He made money anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wasn't going to lose that much. And quite frankly, if he came to me and said, I lost money, I would have made it up to him. Of course. You know? But yeah. it was bad for me to go into that to implant, you know, some kind of. Oh, to implant the possibility that correct. he might actually lose money on this. That is it. And you want to be positive about that. Of course, because if you're saying, I'll give you 200, he's thinking, I'm going to lose 300. It's going to cost me 300 NT for each kilogram of aluminum. It exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because you got to be skinning him somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because he would expect me to do what everybody else would do. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
the thing is, there's another aspect of this whole thing that drove me nuts. And this is one of the reasons that I was motivated to form my own trading company. You know, not the big Taipei ones. I'm not driving a C-Class. I'm driving right. a Volkswagen, you know. <laughs> but it's a nice one. Yeah, it's pretty nice, yeah. Because I wanted the American level of communication. So right away, I got a toll-free U.S. number and a toll-free fax so people can communicate with us. But it's about the communication. And the biggest problem that I had was getting people to call me when something was wrong. You mean here in Taiwan? Yeah. I learned that they will never call if it's a problem for you. But if it's a problem for them, you will get relentless complaining. Right. I right. mean, if you're 30 seconds late on the payment, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. The phone's ringing. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation like this. I was supposed to get the parts yesterday. Oh, yeah. Well, we had a failure. We lost 20% of the shell molds and we're making them again. They'll be ready in two weeks. And they never told they you. They never told me. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me? Oh, why is the I say it's like the same thing. It's just like, oh. It's the old adage of it's easier to ask for, you know, forgiveness That's later them. kind of thing, right? Right, then get they, permission. Yeah. yeah. So when I formed the Asian Casting Consortium, I work with 11 different factories and have all the resources of all these bosses and, you know, 20,000 years worth of experiences. But one of the things I had to make clear is you have to tell me what is going on. You have to. And so now I got them trained. Just a couple of weeks ago, some of our bike parts made over here, actually right down the street in Huco, and they had done the wrong kind of finish on the outside. Instead of sandblast, they, they wheel abraded it, and I almost fell off my seat. I got an email with a picture, like immediately. Is this okay? I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> it was great. And I emailed the, the customer, and the first words of the reply for the customer was, I'm so glad that you looked out for me on this. Wow. Yeah. And he checked with the customer. He said, it's absolutely no problem at all. Go ahead. And I told him, and it's fine. And so I eliminated the fear that they were going to lose money right, that right, way. Right. But if they hadn't told me, I mean, sometimes you look at the box and it's like, what is this? You know? Oh, and, and then, oh, and, oh, oh we, we, we made a mistake. But here's the thing. If they ordered something from Shopee or PC Home and they opened the <laughs> box and it was all messed up, would they accept it? No. No. I mean, there'd be a scooter there, you know, in 20 minutes and taking it away. Right, right. right. And, and, and so, yeah, I never understood that. But if it's not a problem for you, you're not going to get a call. Sometimes I have this discussion with my wife, like, maybe we should call them. Uh, maybe we should call them. No, no, no. Because people here don't like to make calls like that. I don't know why. Maybe it implies incompetence or maybe you're overseeing them too tightly. I don't know. That's a, a good possibility, but I think it's more from the social side of things. Like, you'll know that people very rarely have conversations like, uh, hey, Jim, I just want to call you, see how you're doing, man. How's things going? Yeah, very rarely. Yeah. I, I look at my wife and her friends. She talks to her sister every day and probably nobody else. You know, it's the other side of the world. That's all, that's all I have to say. It's the other side of the world. And so it's kind of unusual. If somebody called me and asked me how things were going, I would not imply that you know, that they said I was incompetent, you know, anything like that. I would just, they're the customer. They've got a right to know, so. Sure. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because mm -hmm. I've traveled to some of your factories with you, which I've always yeah. enjoyed. Yes. Thank you very much for that privilege. Oh, sure. 
I remember we went to Thailand one year when we we went out to Laos in 2010, wasn't that? Yeah, yeah. The three Michaels went to Laos it was and Thailand. Exactly 11 years ago. So it was January. Was it 2010? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. That was a really great trip. But it I was. I remember we went to this Thai factory where mm. they were doing sand casting, and the yeah. the workers were tamping down the sand with their feet. Yes. Their bare feet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How do you compare doing business in the two countries? Completely different. The politeness aspect is there. Things like you don't yell at people. You don't use some of the insulting, insinuating things that that Americans typically do when they <laughs> communicate with each other. But the motivation is different. See, Taiwanese are motivated by money. Like Americans are motivated by money too. But I'll tell you what, you can tell a kid that uh, you're not going to make much money, but I'll get you 100,000 followers on Instagram. You know, They'll do anything, right? right. That's the motiv <laughs> those motivations are very clear. In Taiwan, the motivation is money, but it's also balanced with fear. I have not been able to discover the motive for Thailand people. And remember Frank Sheldon, right? When he was in Lao, mm -hmm. he told me, he said, Lao people are not motivated by money. That's interesting. You can't get them to do anything for money. And I found in Taiwan that people are not motivated by extra money. Because in every case where I had some part or some disaster, something happened wrong, said, I really need to buy this date. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you 20%. I'll give you 30% more. Nobody in 16 years has ever taken me up on an offer for more money to get the order done at the right point in time. And what's amazing is they won't devote any more people to it. They won't devote any more hours to it. And when the rice boxes come exactly on time, every time, nobody ever messed up lunch ever in Taiwan, they will still <laughs> shut down and go to sleep on the floor for an hour and your parts are two months late. Yeah. You have to know this. Yeah. In Thailand, I can't even get them to do it. That factory. Yeah. Okay. That guy is so rich. He's Chinese Thai. He said, give me 50,000 baht and I'll make the tools for you. And he was doing iron castings for another one of my customers that does pipe fittings. I said, okay. So we went down, I got him 50,000 baht cash, handed it to him. I came back six weeks later. He made these beautiful tools, made the most delicious. And, I, and it's, I'm telling you, because I had these made in China. I had them made in Taiwan. I, I had these samples made in Thailand. They were pristine. They were perfect. I said, man, I'm very familiar with this product. These are the best I've ever seen. Wow. I need a quote. <laughs> and it stopped right there. He couldn't give you a quote? He said stuff to me. He goes like, well, we're in Konkan, and I got to get it to the port in Bangkok. Yeah, you got to ship them there. Well, I don't, have, I don't know how to ship them there. Well, you put them in a box. <laughs> okay, but where do I get boxes? Your sister owns a box manufacturing company, remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, just tell her how many you want to put in the carton, and I'm sure they have an engineer at their factory that can design the properly sized box. Never got it. What were you missing? It's, I can't. Did he want you to offer money? I, I don't know. your own estimate, and then he could, like, gauge? No, no see, I... Or dicker I, with you? I don't know. I, at that point, had already known that guy for five years. You know, this is a guy that I used to go to the karaoke and sing Thai songs with, yeah, right? Yeah. And didn't I remember... Didn't we go out with him and we sing? We did. Yeah, you yeah, met yeah. him. Yeah, that's right. And we went out with him, he and his wife, you know? And he asked me for 50,000 baht in his office. I said, I'll be back in 20 minutes. I went to the ATM and got... The guy knows I got the money to do this. It's right. not, you know... And he knows what I'm doing in Taiwan. So, it wasn't a credibility thing at all. He just... Didn't need the money, I guess. Maybe. It's the only thing I can think yeah. of.
Wow. See, some of these guys are so rich and they're so comfortable in the niche that they're in. See, he was doing pulleys. Uh, right, I remember and that. It was yeah. a domestic customer. So he would just make pulleys all day and nothing changed. Didn't have to think about it. He made those arrangements 20 years ago <laughs> and it's, you know, it just been, been going forward. And so I went to some other places and I found the same thing. And the other thing too was that some of the prices I got were not based in reality. See, at least in Taiwan, I can say, okay, this pipe fitting weighs 300 grams, and this one weighs 450 grams. Now, the machining operations are based on time. It takes the same amount of time to machine the small one as it does the big one. The difference is in the weight. Therefore, the cost is the material difference, the weight of the material. So when you're looking at a quotation, you can say, okay, this one might be 35 NT, this one might be 50 NT. So you say the difference between those two has to be in the materials, not the machining. Right. I would go to Thailand and a guy would say, well, I want 50 baht for this one and I want 150 baht for that one. Why? It only weighs, you know, 200 some grams or whatever more than that. Well, that's how much I want to do that. And that was the answer. <laughs> I don't want to do it for less than that. <laughs> I can't live like that. Right, right. I can't justify that to my customer, you know. And so I did get some quotations on things and I couldn't use them. Couldn't do anything with them. It was ridiculous. So here's a guy that's a factory owner. He's very rich. His sister owns a, literally, I wasn't joking, owns the, the factory that makes cardboard corrugated boxes. And he couldn't figure out how to put that all together and get it on a truck down to Bangkok where my broker could take it. Just couldn't do it. Wow. Probably it wasn't big enough for him. That might have been the issue. Too small an order. Yeah, because he asked me how many products they have. I told him the sizes and the ranges. And I said, we're going to start out probably the first year going to be maybe about 300,000 US dollars a year to start. And it just, it wasn't enough. Some of these guys, they don't understand slow and steady wins the race. They, they're looking for the big haul, right. you know? And not everybody's going to find a gold nugget. Right. You're going to find gold dust. <laughs> I pan for gold. I know how it is. If, you, <laughs> if you're not patient, you're not going to get anything. <laughs> Another time I met up with you, we went to the stadium in Taoyuan, and you were playing oh, yeah. music with the Thai workers. Oh, boy. I have to tell you that Michael's a professional guitarist and singer, and it's absolutely amazing. That's a, thank you. That's a, that was, I didn't know we were going to get into that, really, but that was oh. a whole, whole nother thing. Whole I want to thing. segue into that. <laughs> Because we just talked about Thailand. So now we have a Thai segue. True, true. <laughs> we know what happened was, because all these Thai guys that were in this neighborhood, they would bring their guitars out and stuff in the evening, and they're drinking sang song. Oh, wait, rum, we have right? to tell the listeners that Michael lives in Huko, right next to the industrial district. Yes. And in this, this area where he lives is populated with all the workers. There yes. are restaurants and their shops. It's really an amazing place. I like coming yeah. here just for the ambiance. You told me one time there's no other place in Taiwan like this neighborhood. No, there's, yeah. there's really no other place that I've seen that's like this. And so what's different now is, is the Thais have all left for the most part. Yeah, and it's all really Vietnamese sad. now. The dynamics completely, completely right. change. There are one or two good Thai places that I, that I left that i got to show you. But these Thai guys are out there at night and they're, and they're singing you know, Thai songs. Right. And so... I started playing guitar with them on the street corner. So they all know I play guitar, right? And, right. and then they taught me a bunch of songs. I can even sing some of these songs in Thai and phonetically, right? <laughs> Which I got to tell you, for those of you who don't know, when Thai music is exported, 
it always uh-huh. has pinyin on the bottom. You'll have the Thai language written in Thai script, but underneath it is pinyin, Thai pinyin. Right. And so all the karaoke places here in Taiwan that have Thai music have pinyin. And so if I know the song, I can sing it. <laughs> and you don't know how many drunk ties I have freaked out <laughs> by picking up a song and I picking up the mic and I like, they're like, oh man, they can't they can't believe that I'm singing this stuff. It takes three or four, three or four songs for it to dawn on them that I'm reading, you know, the, the opinion down below, right? <laughs> and so anyway, I got to know these Thai songs and uh, there was a a Taiwanese booking agent. That was booking the international shows that they used to have. They had the Songkran, you know, in April, right? right? Yeah. At the Thai New Year. And every year they had a band. And so these guys, they asked me, I said, you want to play with our band? And I'm like, well, what are you kidding me? It's like, I'm 25, 30 years older than you guys, right? And I said, no, Thai people don't care. And it was, it was very convenient because I spoke Chinese. This whole conversation's happened in Chinese. And it's, Thai people don't care. They don't care about your age. Just you care, you know, can you play? Can you sing? And I said, well, I, you know, I do know the songs. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll do one show with you guys. I don't think you ever heard this story before. No, no, I haven't. I said, I'm going to play one show for you guys. So it was the Southeast Asian Music Festival. It was in, gosh, I think it was in late 2007. And it was a small show, about 2,000 people. It was in Taipei, right? And I said, okay, I'm going to play one show. And if these guys are laughing at me because I'm a fat old white guy, you know, then I'm not doing it anymore. And I said, okay, the first song. A woman comes on stage and threw a bouquet of flowers at my feet <laughs> and nobody else, just me. Wow. And so I'm suddenly I'm looking up, I'm going, hey, this is cool. So another guy <laughs> comes up. This is before the first song is even finished. I'm telling you. Another guy comes up to the stage and he gives me the why. You know, you put the hands together, yeah, right? Yeah. And he tries to grab my hand and shake it. He's got a hundred NT in his hand. He's trying to give me a tip. It's like, it's a no, no. I was like, that's, 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 I wanted up to Rebecca. So I got to play guitar, man. So, so they're trying so. I said, you guys are right. They love me. Okay, so they did like 10 shows after that, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the next show that you saw was the first one we did in Italian Stadium. But uh, the one we did following year had double the amount of people. I remember you sent me some photos, yeah. It was like 10,000 people at the, the, that the second one. It was, yeah. And I Pete, think you were even in the news, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you were on one of the TV news shows. Yeah, and actually we did a, um, the, one of the, the movies, The Detours to Paradise came out. And we had formed a second band because some of the Thai guys went back home. We formed a second band out of another band called Blue Sky, and we changed the name to, to Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, R.A. was a singer. He was actually one of the movie stars in, in the movie, see? Ah. And so we did a movie premiere, uh-huh. and it had a big movie star from Indonesia that had come to Taiwan to start the movie, and we got to hang out with her. And so this big, fat American guy with a – I had my bush <laughs> hat on. And I was playing a Brian May guitar, which is really interesting because I, I went to this one place, in, a Thai place. And I'm looking around. I said, what the heck is this? There's a picture of me and R.A. on the front of a Thai music magazine. Sweet. Yeah. And I'm like, what's going on? I got my bush hat on. Man. So I know I would have taken that thing off. I was, just, you know, <laughs> I was wearing my shades. I was having a good time. I had a couple drinks and, I was just, and I'm playing this Brian May guitar, you know, from Queen, sure. right? Brian May of Queen. Yeah. And I'm like, that's probably the only time that a Brian May guitar has ever been Featured on a Thai music magazine where <laughs> Brian May wasn't playing it. <laughs> you know, there's people looking at it go, that's, that's not, that's not, pretty sure that's not Brian May. <laughs> like, <laughs> they probably said it was him though. <laughs> Look how Brian May has changed I, since I can't, the 1980s. He's going down, folks. Yeah, he's really deteriorated. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I oh my goodness. I, I can't imagine. Uh, I, I couldn't read Thai, so I could tell what they were saying. It might be right. You know, so who knows? Well, that's what a PhD in astrophysics does to you, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. May actually did that. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah. I know. So For that, the listeners. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. And actually, they wanted to do some recording. And we went to a studio in Taipei. And I don't think you know this one either. <laughs> but that session was a complete disaster. Because I went in, and of course, my background, I talk about this stuff, it sounds like I'm bragging. In the 80s and 90s, I was one of the more prolific recording engineers and producers in Boston. I've done over 500 mixes on 24-track analog. Mm -hmm. And I was in the music magazines every, every week. And if you look at the 1980 October edition of Spin Magazine, I'm in that article that they did about a record company that I was engineering records for those guys. So I go back pretty far. So I walk into the studio, and the first thing I see, there's no recording console. I'm like, oh, man, this is a, this is a DAW-based, you know, he's got a keyboard that he's using for a MIDI controller and a mouse. And I walk over to him, and he, I said, let me hear some of the stuff you've done. And he presses the space bar on the keyboard and starts playing back stuff. And I said, you do realize, of course, that your recording monitors are out of phase. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? I said, well, the polarity in one of these speakers is reversed. <laughs> So I'm looking at the DAW, and he's got the bass jacked up on all the EQ, like, yes, plus 15 or something, right? So I said, okay, kill the PAL ramp, will you? Okay, so kill it. So they were not powered. They were externally powered speakers. I just flipped the wires, you know, the red and the black in the back, and suddenly he's like, all this bass comes out. He's like, that's why your bass is gone. But you had a problem with the kick drum and the lead vocal too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now you know why, because that's like, oh, my goodness. So. That session didn't go very well. <laughs> so what else have you done in Taiwan? Geocaching, yeah. playing with Thai bands? Yeah, that's, that's making all. Making metal parts? That's all I can take. I can't do much more. <laughs> I, did, I did build a studio in my house. The last three years I've been piecing it together. And I have actually two consoles. I've got a, a digital console and an analog console. And I was happy to be able to work with Dr. Patrick Gia Mayu, who's a, a famous computer scientist from France, to develop a mixing automation system called Automate. So it, the one I use is 32 Reaper Automate, it's called. And it, you can find it on, on um, x32ram.com. And it's a pretty cool system. And I approached him about the idea of doing it, and he did it. And it's brilliant. So now we have moving fader automation on this, on this incredible digital mixing console that previous didn't exist because everybody is using the faders you know like for DAW control to control automation envelopes within the DAW and I said no man I don't, I don't want to buy a $3,000 console just to move a bunch of faders I want to use the EQ and the effects and all that stuff in the console and because that's where I come from I mean I worked in studios like Longview you know where the Rolling Stones and all those Jay Giles records all that stuff were done right. on an SSLG console that's three three football field long you know <laughs> And so I'm used to automation and mixing automation on, you know, and my ear hand coordination is based on that. I hear something, I know which knob to reach for, but I look at a DAW and I go crying out, well, where's, where's the control for that? I don't know. I got to pull, use a menu, pull it down. I got to scroll over. It takes me 20 minutes to, to do uh, anything. Right, right. And so right. when I was building my studio, I had to take a really, really hard look at that and how, you know, I was going to implement that. So. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. If you need sound or drinks mixed, Michael is your man. <laughs> I call my studio Phoenix Media Forge. Oh, sure. Phoenix course. Media Forge. And you can find a website at phoenixmediaforge.com if you're interested. But Wow. <laughs> well, 
I think we've reached a, an excellent place to stop, and I hope to have another conversation with you soon about oh, some of the amazing things that have happened to you here. And this time, I'd like to like to hear you say something. I've been talking <laughs> no. so much, I, I apologize. I just... <laughs> no, no, this is about you, not me. But thanks. No, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for everything. Hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. Hey, I'm just that Taiwan girl.